0: today what we're going to do is we're going to look at Hannah's prayer because I think Hannah's prayer exhibits a person who is going through this deep spiritual struggle. Now the passage tells us about Hannah and the reason why she is extremely distressed at this point of her life, and the reason is because she is a barren woman. Uh, She cannot have children. Hannah is married to Okana. And in those days, a lot of men had multiple wives. So Elkanah had two wives, and the other wife is Peninnah. And according to verse 2, Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, I know <laughs> we aren't used to polygamy uh, in the West. Uh, some cultures in the world still practice polygamy. Uh, but I'm going to take a wild guess here, and I'm going to say maybe nobody here uh, knows anybody or knows a family that has multiple spouses uh, or, at least in this case, multiple wives, and you look at the Old Testament, and many of the male figures actually had several wives and uh, you know you don't you don 't actually see the reverse where uh, a woman had multiple husbands, and the reason for that is probably because in ancient cultures, men were the means of economic support, and therefore they had greater power. And uh, having children was important for the future of a family, just for the economic future of a family. And so the more wives a man had, then maybe the more children a man could have. Uh, and we kind of look at this, and, you know, I thought about this this week. This is actually the first time I thought about the Bible and polygamy. I don't know why I've never thought about it before, but I was like, you know, God doesn't seem to really condemn, right, these men with multiple wives, and they're kind of positive figures. And I kind of I was curious why that is. Uh, And I did a little bit more research, and it's not that God uh, thinks polygamy is a good thing. I think we can kind of uh, discern that from the early chapters of Genesis and the way that God designed marriage as one uh, man and one woman coming together in one flesh. But there's a scholar, a Jewish scholar, and he says, actually, if you look at all the instances of polygamy in the Bible, uh, they're never seen in a positive light. The fact that these men had multiple wives uh, usually leads to some kind of problem in the family. And I think you can imagine why. Because, you know, in a monogamous marriage, you know, there's no competition. There's no comparison for devotion for your spouse. Each person is completely and wholly devoted to one another. And, of course, that's how God designed marriage. You know, when you have multiple wives, somebody is inevitably going to get jealous uh, for their husband's affections. And that's actually what happens in this story as well, and in this instance as well, and in this family as well, because if you look at verses 4 and 5, it gives us insight into the family dynamic. Elkanah would go make a sacrifice, and he, this is probably for a feast like the Feast of Tabernacles, and then he would distribute some of the sacrificial meat. He would give portions to one wife, to Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. Then verse 5 says, Elkanah gave Hannah double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. It's kind of like an ancient version of a love triangle maybe. Uh, As you'd expect, Elkanah's favoritism towards Hannah, uh, it creates a little bit of tension and it creates some drama. And so Penina's response is she provokes Hannah and irritates her because the Lord had closed her womb. uh, if you think about it, and if you actually know anybody who's gone through infertility issues, that's pretty messed up, right, to poke someone, to irritate somebody based on the fact that they can't have any children. You know, uh, in the ancient world, uh, the inability to have children uh, is actually harder than people who struggle with infertility today because, you know, if you're a woman, uh, your, your future security is actually conditioned upon the fact that you produce children. Who's going to take care of you? There is no retirement plan. Women in those days didn't have career like women today. And so therefore, it it does create a sense of hopelessness towards the future. It creates a sense of loss of identity. It creates a sense of isolation. It creates a feeling of anxiety. And I think women today who go through infertility uh, experience many of the similar things. And there's always this uh, potential for this cycle of disappointment after disappointment, month after month. And so for a person to provoke somebody who cannot have children is just really cruel, right? Really cruel. But that's what Panina does. You know, if Hannah has no children and Elkanah dies, who is going to take care of Hannah? Right? Nobody. Panina. She is provoking Hannah. She's reminding Hannah. Guess what? Look, you can't produce children. What value <laughs> are you? Uh, what value do you contribute to this family? What is your future going to look like? Perhaps she is saying some of these things. You know, just think about some of the the conversations that may take place. You know, Hannah, I'm going to take my kids to the playground. What are you going to do, Hannah? My oldest has finally started to uh, to learn to work and is making an immediate contribution to the family, and I know that he is going to take good care of me. Hannah, what are you going to do when you get old? Can you just imagine what it would feel like to be somebody like Hannah? And uh, if this was a reality show, Panina would definitely play the villain in this show, in this story. Now as a result, Hannah, she weeps and would not eat. She feels despair. And since Elkanah cares for her, he tries to comfort her. And he says things like, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And in other words, what is he saying? He's saying, Hannah, aren't you happy with me, your husband, even though uh, you don't have any children? Now, I'm going to guess maybe some, of the, some people here, maybe some of the women here, you kind of roll your eyes at what Elkanah <laughs> is saying to her, as if that is supposed to ultimately make her feel better. Uh, he see, sees his wife struggling and the way he says, tries to make her feel better is basically saying, look at me. Look what you have in me. <laughs> Aren't you happy? <laughs> right? Aren't you happy with me? <sighs> you know, maybe he's being a little bit tone deaf and insensitive to Hannah's distress, but uh, he, you know, he probably is trying to care for her and trying to make her feel better because as the text says, he does love her. And obviously, that's not going to make Hannah feel better But i think there's a good insight here as well hannah's distress is not ultimately going to be solved by her husband it won't be solved by her husband the solution is not husband her only recourse is what to go to the lord in prayer and that's what she does after eating hannah rises up she goes to the tabernacle entrance to pray and her prayer is not the typical run-of-the-mill ancient jewish tabernacle prayer She is praying in deep distress, and she prays to the Lord as she weeps bitterly. And if you've ever seen uh, anybody in that moment of raw, honest, vulnerable prayer to the Lord, then you kind of might know what that looks like. Somebody kind of like just heaving and just praying and pouring their heart out to the Lord. And it's so unusual, actually, in this context that Eli the priest assumes that Hannah is drunk (laughs) because her lips are moving, but her voice was not heard. And in that moment, this is what she prays in verse 11. She says this, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. What is she doing there? What is she praying? Is, is she kind of bargaining with God and kind of saying, you know, if you do this for me, God, then I will do this for you. Uh, you know, if you're somebody who has been in the church for a while, uh, maybe that kind of prayer is a little bit of a turnoff and you think that kind of prayer is wrong. You don't really bargain with God because prayer is not some means of making an economic transaction, right? So what is really going on here? Well, it's important to understand that Hannah, she is making a vow, and she's making a very particular and specific vow here. And that last line in the prayer that she will not let a razor touch the head of her son, why in the world would she say something like that? Why make that kind of promise? Well, if you look at number six, uh, it talks about something called a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow. A Nazarite is somebody who (coughs) makes a vow, separates themselves from others by consecration to the Lord through this vow. So number six, someone who made a Nazarite vow, they would have to refrain from three things. They couldn't get drunk. They couldn't be around dead bodies. And the last thing, they could not cut their hair. If you know the story of Samson, did you know Samson was a Nazarite? <coughs> uh, that. By the way, his mother was also barren as well, and that vow was made. And that's why in that story, Samson's hair was so significant, and when his hair is cut, it's such a big deal because he's a Nazirite. That's a vow that was made, and he wasn't supposed to have his hair cut. And, of course, when he cut his hair, all his strength left him. Hannah here, she's making a Nazirite vow on behalf of her son, and if God gives her a son, (coughs) she's saying this, he will be a Nazirite. And that actually tells a lot about Hannah's heart here. You know, when we ask God for something, whether it's a child, whether it's a job, whether it's a spouse, whether it's for good weather, whatever it is that we ask God for, uh, there is something that we should be aware of in terms of our prayers. And we should be aware that perhaps we might be asking something of God that is actually deeply rooted in our uh, heart's idols or our heart's desires, and therefore, for God to provide it would simply facilitate something that needs to be rooted out of our hearts. So for example, it is possible that Hannah ultimately wants a child because she needs something that is going to give her an identity. Her husband is suggesting that she find that identity in his love and his affection, but that wouldn't be right either, and Penina is suggesting, Hannah, your life is meaningless and purposeless because you don't have a child, And so, of course, for somebody like Hannah, the temptation is to say, well, as long as I have a a child, all my life's problems will be solved. I'll finally have an identity again. (coughs) If all your friends have children and, uh, you know, they're all going to the park with their kids and you don't have a child yourself, you can feel excluded, right? And so, as a barren woman, you don't have any way to connect to the wider community. And so, therefore, uh, the temptation is to say, look, What's missing in my life is this child, and this child will give me everything that my heart desires. But I don't think that's Hannah's heart in this instance, and I'll tell you why. You know, when Hannah makes this vow, it's telling us this, that she isn't really looking for this child to be her ultimate fulfillment because she makes a vow as a Nazirite. Now, what is a life of a Nazarite like? Well, a Nazirite would basically work as a priest, work in the tabernacle, which means that Hannah wouldn't actually raise this child, or be with this child, or see this child all that often, and that's why, if you read uh, for, like First Samuel three, you notice that when God is calling Samuel at night, like Samuel, Samuel, what does Samuel do? He doesn't go to his mother; he goes to the priest Eli. Why? Because he's probably living in the tabernacle because of this vow. And so, for Hannah to make this vow, it's a bit like saying, God, if you give me a car. This car that I want, I'll donate it to a missionary so that it can be used for full-time ministry. That's kind of what she's saying here, right? So she is not going to enjoy the, the, the fruits of having a child because she immediately dedicates this child to God through this vow. Now, there's another clue here, I think, that the solution to Hannah's distress is not ultimately found in her having a child because, you know, after Hannah spent some time in prayer, Eli says to her, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And Hannah returns and eats, and her face was no longer sad. So after this time of prayer, after this time of encountering God, uh, she goes back home. She is not yet pregnant. Uh, She does not yet have child, but it says her face was no longer sad. The question is, why wasn't she sad anymore? What happens to Hannah? Now, the text doesn't give us details, but I think based on uh, the next chapter and based on her prayer in the next chapter, I think we can conclude that in the midst of her prayer, she had a powerful encounter with the living God. And that's ultimately what she needed. That's ultimately what her heart needed. In other words, it's not the answer to her prayer that brought her peace, but it is the God of peace whom she encountered through prayer that brought her peace peace. There is an interesting contrast here between Hannah and Eli the priest. Uh, just think about this. Hannah is kind of a nobody in her culture. She's a woman, and women in the, that culture didn't garner too much respect. Not only that, she's a woman who has no children. There's nothing glorious about her in terms of her status in society. Who is Eli Eli, on the other hand, he is a priest, and being a priest working in the tabernacle would automatically have commanded respect. And yet, here's a contrast Hannah is someone who knows God deeply and intimately, while Eli is a one who comes off a little bit spiritually impotent. When Hannah prays, she invokes the personal name of God. She says, O Lord of hosts, Now, in verse 11, Lord is actually supposed to be capitalized, and when it's capitalized in the Bible, that means that the personal name of God is being used and invoked. That's what Hannah is doing here. She's saying, oh, Lord of hosts. When Eli addresses God in verse 17, he uses a very generic title. He says, the God of Israel. Not only that, Eli is, I think, a little bit blind to see that Hannah is praying from a sincere heart because he judges things externally rather than spiritually. Eli would later rebuke his sons for doing something evil, for laying with women who were serving at the temple, and his sons don't even listen to him, so his household gets condemned. When God calls Samuel, Samuel runs to Eli, and Eli doesn't immediately recognize that it is the voice of God that is calling Samuel. Samuel. You see, all these stories and all these instances is suggesting something. Not that Eli was an evil person, but Eli is a little bit spiritually impotent as a man. That's an important lesson, I think, about prayer. The lesson is this. You know, it doesn't really matter what your status is like in the world, right? You could be a Hannah, you could be an Eli, you could be a barren woman, you could be a priest. But all that mattered at the end of the day was that, Hannah intimately knew God, the presence of God, the peace of God. I think we do have a congregation of probably, you know, many of you are probably pretty successful people, probably have, uh, you know, good statuses in society, good statuses in the world. Not only that, uh, we're in New York City, and I'm sure people think like New York is so cool, right? A lot of cool and important (laughs) stuff happens in New York City. But I tell you, if you're resting on those things to be your foundation, uh, this passage should be somewhat of a warning to us, right? None of that stuff really matters to God at the end of the day. What really matters is, do you know him? Do you know him intimately, personally? Do you encounter him? Do you fellowship with him? Do you depend upon him? If you are someone who actually feels very poor and rejected in the world and have low status in society, this is actually a really encouraging text and a really encouraging passage because it's saying this, that the thing about desperate people like Hannah is you know what it's like to be so distressed and to be so stripped of an identity that the only recourse is to go to God and to depend upon Him. And that is actually a beautiful thing in God's sight. See, that's a beautiful thing about prayer. It's actually the great equalizer. Uh, It doesn't matter who you are in this world. It doesn't matter where you have high status or low status. But for all people, it's an opportunity to find intimacy with God. The spiritual danger for those in a position of comfort and respect is you may never feel the need to pray. But you see, that shouldn't surprise us because that's typically the pattern of how God works. He usually works through weakness rather than strength. He usually works through hunger and poverty rather than wealth. He usually works through our sorrows and comfort uh, our sorrows and our hurts rather than through our comforts and security. Why? Because when God works in weakness, the one thing it does is it demonstrates to us that God is a God of grace. And it's an opportunity to remember that strength comes not from ourselves but from him. That our sense of being filled comes not from what we achieve, but from him. That our comfort and security comes not in terms of our retirement plans and how we structure our investments for the future, but it comes from him. How else do we come to that realization unless we find ourselves like a Hannah, stripped down and broken of all that we think is important and meaningful to us? You see, that is actually how the process and pattern of salvation works This is what has to happen if we are going to be connected to the very source of life. And that's the pattern that we see God do in terms of the work of salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, if you think about some of the people born of barren women in history, in redemptive history, in biblical history, it's pretty amazing. Isaac was born of a barren woman. Isaac was the child of promise. Samson was the strongest judge of Israel. Samuel was the prophet who anointed King David. John the Baptist was a precursor to the Messiah. All these figures born of a barren woman. And even though Mary wasn't a barren woman, She was a virgin woman, betrothed to be married, who suddenly finds herself pregnant in the most scandalous of situations. She gives birth to Jesus in a very small town in a dirty manger because there is no room in the inn. And some people thought that is not how the Messiah would come. No, when Jesus came into the world, what Jesus was supposed to do is he was supposed to become this powerful, strong political figure political king who would make Israel into a great nation again as it was during the time of King David. But that's not what Jesus did. And that's not how God brings salvation into the world. No, Jesus came poor. Jesus came weak. Jesus came as a servant. Jesus came to die upon a cross. And that is the pattern of salvation Do you know what it means that God works through weakness? Salvation's by grace. Something that's given to us, something that we need to receive. You know, I I know grace, if you're somebody who's been in the church for a long time and you hear kind of like these Christian words like grace, uh, we probably think grace sounds nice, but think about the implication of what that means. If salvation is by grace, grace means that your current status in the world really has no bearing in God's (laughs) eyes. If salvation is by grace, it means that you are poor and needy and you need somebody to give you grace. Grace means that you don't have the ability to achieve it yourself. Grace means that you don't have the ability to achieve righteousness and acceptance yourself. And for those of us who can accept that, grace then becomes this amazing, amazing thing. Why? Because it means no matter who you are and where you are in this world, no matter your life circumstances, God has already given you access to what you ultimately need in Christ. And he did it through weakness. You know, I suspect uh, one of my prayers for our church has been God teach us to pray, grow us in prayer. I suspect if God is going to answer that, it might happen by way of uh, a Hannah experience. Uh, It may happen through struggle and hardship. It may happen where God has to strip us down <laughs> and destroy some of uh, the things that we find our identity in as a pathway to experience greater peace and joy in the fact, simple fact that we know him, are known by him, and have received his grace. If that happens, who knows? If it does happen that way, um, the one encouragement that we can find is through the life of Hannah, that she went away no longer sad, that she experienced peace, even though in that moment her circumstances had not changed. And how does she get there? Through prayer. And that's the power of prayer, friends. And that's why we need to cling to prayer. Let's pray together.